0: Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today our guests are a duo of educators, reformers, and authors. They also happen to be brothers, and the authors of the new book, Teaching the Taboo, Courage and Imagination in the Classroom. Welcome to the EdCast, Rick and William Ayers. Thanks very much. So let's start with the word taboo. Taboo is a strong social prohibition relating to any area of human activity that is sacred and forbidden based on moral judgment. In the classroom, what is this sacred and forbidden? Well, what
1: what we basically take the position that what's taboo is questioning the common sense, the taken for granted. And we think that the best way to teach is not to t- to teach all the received wisdom or the cliches of our culture and our time, but actually to upend every one of them. So the taboo is asking the next question. It's always asking the next question.
0: So specifically, a specific concrete example of something in a classroom that would be taboo would be what? what is the next question?
2: Well, it's a matter of encouraging. We wrote this book to encourage young teachers and new teachers especially to think about the best experiences they've had in learning, and they're usually not filling out worksheets or preparing for a test, but it's really giving the students a chance to ask questions and pursue those questions, which may take you out of the building, may take you going down to look at the murals in the Mission District, and uh, all of these things, more and more in the kind of regimes of test and punish we're living in, uh, have become the taboo. writing a book really to try to change the narrative. There's this sort of deadening narrative on education today that's really being uh, driven by by these people uh, in the foundations and the government, and we're trying to capture a much more democratic vision of education.
1: Let me give you two examples of the next question. A teacher in Milwaukee took his second graders down to the lake, then to Lake Michigan, and they were just digging in the sand and looking. And some kids said, who owns the water? Now, and the teacher, being a good second grade teacher, said to the kids, who do you think owns the water? And the answers ranged from uh, George Bush to Bill Gates. Um, but, but at the end of the day, they pursued that question and discovered that their sister city, Juarez, Mexico, actually has a very different relationship to water. Water costs money in Juarez. Why is it free when you live on the edge of Lake Michigan? And so on. that's an, a tr- small and simple and everyday example of asking the next question and pursuing it to its furthest limits.
0: Cornell West writes, you provide a devastating critique of the pervasive market models in education now, looking at all the models, where is this imagination and courage needed most, and where is it also thriving most?
2: Uh, as always happens, I think that the most interesting and important work is local. I, I, I think that uh, some of my best uh, former students want to go into ed policy and cross swords with, with uh, you know, kind of the MBAs are try, who are trying to define uh, education future through these sort of narrow metrics of the test and so on and I think the best work happens when communities, parents, children and teachers are really thinking outside the box and when you really think about the, the kind of groundbreaking educational uh, initiatives, they all happened locally, they didn't happen in a policy room. Paulo Freire who is famous today for his Brazilian Uh, project of education, which is still active throughout Latin America. This guy was in a little village in a mountain in Brazil, you know, and uh, Nixon, who was president at the time, couldn't even imagine, you know, where the hell he was. And and the same with Charles Cobb and the Mississippi Freedom Summer, the same with A.S. Neal and Summerhill. These projects were, were basically local and and then they spread like wildfire. But they weren't only local, Rick, they were also outside the classroom.
1: So oh, where yeah. does it happen? It happens often outside the classroom. Where is it needed the most? It's needed the most in communities that are dispossessed, that are disposable, that are marginalized. So the kids who need to ask the questions, and the, the big questions are, who am I in the world, and what are my chances, what are my choices? that's needed most on the west side of Chicago, inner city Boston, the South Bronx. That's where we need the taboo.
0: It said this is a hands-on manual for anyone looking to evolve as an educator. In the book, are there steps for improvement for teachers, for educators? I know going outside the classroom seems like one of the things you've been talking about. What else? What is the takeaway? What is the call to action of this book?
2: I think that, uh, it's often hard to you know a lot of times our kids want to read a book and say so what's the message and the message is the whole book so it's hard to just sort of distill it but I would say you know we we go to many classrooms and look at examples of where uh, teachers try to put a put the students in the center of their focus instead of all the other pressures I mean teaching is hard when you're teaching you're going to fail every day at something. You're going to have some wonderful miracles in front of your eyes, and you're also going to fail miserably. And so it's a very tricky process. But we have many cases here, and we're not just valorizing heroic teachers like you know the Freedom Writers uh, kind of narrative. But we are trying to challenge the narrative that just says teachers are bad, schools are terrible, our kids are... are diseased uh, and 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 really encourage teachers to almost capture what they see in front of them uh, the best stuff uh, I've had some very good uh, former students who became teachers who only lasted a couple years you know forty percent of new teachers quit in the first three years so we're trying to change the narrative from this one that demonizes teachers to one that you uh, reminds us to capture the best stuff. And in every one of the portraits or stories that we tell in here, there
1: is a kind of a rhythm and the rhythm is, um, and Rick was, uh, was getting at it, I mean the rhythm is, You have to see the students as three-dimensional creatures. That's a first step. You have to build bridges from the unknown to the known. You have to ask the next question again and again. And you have to let the world in. You can't wall off the world. You have to let the world come in with all of its bristling problems, contradictions,
0: and questions. A few of my colleagues have read the book and said that certain parts of it are actually hilarious. curious about maybe you sharing some of the anecdotes from the book, something to look forward to. Maybe tell us half of the story, and then we'll have to buy the book to find out the end.
2: <laughs> OK. Well, one of the stories that I like the most, and um, it's not too funny, but I guess there's funny moments. Uh, you know, we had, in, in the small school I was with, uh, uh, we weren't doing math and science. We were doing the other uh, courses. was a small school within the large school. We'd send them out for math and science. Well, our kids, it was a very diverse school. They were failing in math and science. So we brought that in to bring it in the small school to do our small school magic as we thought we had. And it turned out that after the first semester, 30% of the kids had an F in biology, advanced biology. So long story short, it was very moving to me that we negotiated with the science department to say let us reteach that first semester to these don't kick them out the tradition was you kick them out for the second semester and put them down to the low level science and by god over time over a lot of mistakes and tears and fights um, they all got through and got up to a c in science well what's up with that so we don't have three months to back up these kids in science and that's the achievement gap that we haven't locked down for 12 years. we couldn't give them the three months. so it was very moving to me, but many people in the science department then and even more now say that's not fair. that wasn't fair that you gave them that time. You know it's weird when I was in the army um, they, I, I was in a very complicated advanced training, and I was an anti-war soldier, but I was in there. It was advanced training in how to shoot a mortar and how to do all these measurements and calculations. The weird thing is, there was a lot of working class poor kids in that group. 120 kids went in to that training. 120 kids graduated. Why? Because they needed 120. But the way our system is, they need people to fail. It's structured in. The achievement gap is not, some puzzling thing, it's something that's constructed. I'll give you a funny
1: story, as long as you want a funny story. You know, this is the taboo. The taboo is asking the next question. So you know who Governor Huckabee is. He's uh, running for president and he was the governor of Arkansas. Well, he was a very large man and he lost a couple hundred pounds and became kind of the poster child for Dramatic weight loss. He also has been an advocate against childhood uh, obesity, which I think is admirable. Uh, but you may not know this: that in Arkansas, on your report card, you get your traditional grades, and you also get your body mass index. So you get a report card that says you get an A in English, a C in science, and you're fat. Now, you know you don't know what to do with that. And and a typical kind of a, a situation as an employee of the Arkansas system, you would kind of just do it and and you might grumble about it or think it's silly. But here's what teaching the taboo would involve. It would involve asking a series of questions. Questions like, what's the tradition of these kinds of reforms changing behavior? or What's the state of our physical education program? Or what's the state of our parks? Who owns the franchise to the lunchroom and the snack bar? How many stores right around the school are selling um, trans fats? And are there any food deserts in our schools? On and on and on, we would interrogate the world. And we wouldn't ask permission to interrogate the world. The really radical lesson of teaching in a democracy is you don't need permission to interrogate the world, you have the right to, in fact, you have a responsibility to. And so I think that kind of thing is a small example of teaching the taboo.
0: I think it's interesting that you two are brothers and you co-wrote a book. What what is that process like? You've both done your own independent writing, now collaboration, uh, did you guys get along as children? Is this a fun process or is it just a combination of all your talents and skills but it was dreadful?
2: it was horrible horrible <laughs> no no we're very close it wasn't interesting we've done other collaborations in the past but this probably the actually you know the, our editor at Teachers College Press kind of pushed us both and said you, you guys both get caffeinated up and you have a lot of stories to tell you should really put something together that's kind of your uh, letter of encouragement for teachers as far as um, your philosophy and so that's what we did and we actually through chapters back and forth, and we took our time. Actually, I think we did two or three years. We didn't work on it all the time. It kind of accelerated at certain points, but I think uh, it was fun. We have a great collaboration, and we do tend to finish each other's sentences and steal uh, anecdotes from each other.
1: That's not that's not called stealing anymore. That's called collaging or sampling. It <laughs> used to be used to be plagiarism. It's no post-modern. more. Yeah, it's postmodern. But, but the truth is that, uh, that we've known each other our whole lives, obviously. We're a couple years apart. And um, I, I'm, I'm the elder uh, of the two. But uh, we have been, we went to college together. We roomed together in college. Um, we were anti-war activists together. We were anti-racist fighters together. And we were teachers together. So there's, there's nothing we kind of haven't done together. And uh, I have always found, and still find, um, that Rick has an original mind and an original turn of mind and he, um, and he has a lot of intellectual courage so it was easy for me to kind of th- find uh, this provocative and interesting and worth doing um, and now we're working on a we're actually co-editing a journal a special issue of monthly review about education at the end of Empire and once again we're having a lot of fun just emailing back and forth and kind of building on each other's ideas
0: I'm curious, what was it about the heirs' household growing up that instilled the sense of reform? This spirit in the both of you, neither of you errs on the side of caution, and I've been waiting a while for that pun. Oh, I like it.
1: You know, I was introduced uh, at, a, at a seminar, a writing seminar, and the person who was running the writing seminar took my fingerprints and then held them up and he says, these are the fre- fresh prints of Bill Ayers. Um, <laughs> in any case, um, so you, you've got the pun going and I, I just thought I'd add that pun. Um, you know, I actually think that, that I think two things. One is that um, we grew up, we, we were very fortunate. We had a loving family, a family that allowed us to think for ourselves, that encouraged us to think for ourselves, that promoted at least, um, you know, kind of, Uh, explicitly in the in the language of the house uh, promoted a kind of egalitarian uh, spirit we're all human beings we all um, should treat one another with respect we were in a family of five children Uh, we were privileged to have great educations and to go to great universities and so all of that was in our favor and then the the thing that kind of kicked us over the edge, I think, is that we took our parents' lessons seriously, and we went to Michigan in nineteen in the early 1960s. And what that meant was we were at the birthplace of Students for a Democratic Society. We were at a place where the civil rights movement came for generation and um, uh, renewal. And we found ourselves caught up in that world. And I think both of us feel very, very lucky that we were knocked off the track that would have put us into the mid-level kind of business world and actually found a, a life of uh, uh, pursuing a kind of a, uh, what we hope is a kind of an ethical path and a, and a path of thoughtfulness and action.
0: So I guess my final question is, where can people get the book?
2: Well, I'll tell you. We, we spoke at Modern Times in San Francisco and I went by there last week and they said they're going out of business. Oh, that's- Actually, they may come back in a year, but they lost their lease. So, I would like you to, if you have the time, please order it from an independent bookstore. They'll even probably give you a discount and wait the four days and get it. So, I don't want to say get it at Amazon, although I confess that I have my little sinful Amazon moments myself. Um, but you can get it anywhere. I, I don't know if it's going to be right off the shelf, but you can get it.
0: And you can get it at Teachers College. Teachers Press. College
2: Press is who puts it out.
0: Okay, well, I suppose I'd be remiss if I didn't ask one taboo question today. Uh, Bill, is it true you are writing uh, Donald Trump's memoirs?
1: I am indeed writing Donald Trump's memoir, and I've written so many memoirs over the last several years. And I want Donald Trump to help me prove that I wrote Barack Obama's memoir. I told him I would split the royalties with him, but I don't think he needs the royalties. He doesn't have any economic incentive. Now I'm writing his memoir, and if you can help me prove that, I'll split the royalties with you.
0: Bill and Rick Ayers, the name of the book is Teaching the Taboo, Courage and Imagination in the Classroom. It has been a whole lot of fun. Thank you for appearing on the EdCast today. Thanks very much. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening.
2: the Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.